right? Something like that. So we're just kind of jumping in at Lord's Day 24. That's okay, I think. So I'll read the uh, dark print and ask you to respond with the light print. This is questions, of course, 62 and 63 and 64. Why can't our good works be our righteousness before God, or at least a part of our righteousness? How can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? But doesn't this teaching make people indifferent and wicked? You'll keep that in mind as we get to some relevant portions of the sermon. Uh, I may or may not refer directly back to that, but particularly question 63, how can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? And I'll uh, be saying some things directly relevant to that. Let's pray before we read God's word, please. Our Father and God, we turn to you unfilled. We have a hunger for you and knowing you and living for you. Our desire is to be like Jesus, and we're not there. We're not even close. But we believe that the means of grace, the word and the sacraments and the prayer that we offer in Jesus' name can can be a part of moving us, a big part of moving us toward uh, completeness in Christ. And so... As we read and look at your word, we pray that the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit that inspired these words would illuminate them to our understanding and that you'd use a wretchedly crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus. And We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would take your Bibles and turn to Luke's Gospel again tonight in chapter 17 of Luke's gospel. I want to read just four verses, verses 7 and 8 and 9 and 10, and uh, verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. And uh, while you're turning, I would remind you that we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, that it is something that God gave us. God spoke down through the apostles and the prophets in many portions in many ways. I like to say it's not man's reflections about God and who he is and what he might be and do, but it's God's revelation, not our reflections. And that's good news because we need a word from the outside. And so I want to read beginning in Luke 17 at verse 7, just these four verses, a very simple and direct story of relevance as we've looked at Lord's Day 24. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down at table? Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? 
Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers all will fade away, but this is God's word. It will not fade. It will abide forever and forever. So if you read through the Bible and say, look at the question, how are God's people addressed or named or described? You get a lot of different answers. We're new creations. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Okay, that's one thing. And we're referred to as the saved. We're referred to as the elect. We're referred to as God's chosen people. We're referred to as sheep. We're referred to as children. And sometimes we're referred to as servants slash slaves. The word servant or slave doulos is an under rower on a ship. And sometimes Paul referred to himself as a doulos, a slave, a servant of Jesus Christ. He repeatedly did that. And Jesus uses that word here. And so I want us to think this evening of one aspect of servanthood. Now the story is exceedingly simple. Uh, There appears to be a farmer or landowner, and in the story at least he has one servant, and the servant works outside all day plowing or tending sheep, uh, either uh, crops or animals. At night, He comes in and he prepares food for his master before he eats. And he does that without receiving thanks. He's done his job. That's what he's supposed to do. The structure is really simple. There's the setting given at the beginning of verse 7. Then Jesus gives three questions through the end of verse 7 to down verse 9. And in verse 10 draws a conclusion. So let me make some preliminary comments about this little story, and then I want to make two points uh, from it for us this evening. In the broader setting, I think what Jesus is trying to do is to teach humility to his disciples in the face of amazing ministry. Um, They are about to and have been already engaged in a very fruitful ministry. And he doesn't want them to get the big head. He doesn't want them to be anything but humble servants. And I think that's a part of this purpose, rather, of this story. The main point is to teach us the proper attitude toward ourselves and our works and our service for God. I think Jesus wants to correct the pharisaical perversion but that by our service we make God our debtor. That we can, by our required service, have a claim on God's favor and say to God, you owe me. And he's trying to hit that in the head and kill it. I think it's important to say it's that the main point here is not to teach us how God treats his people. I don't think the, the, the servant owner 
in this passage represents God. Because in other places in Luke's gospel, uh, for instance in Luke 12 at verse 37, there's an image of Jesus serving his people in heaven. And in Luke 22, Jesus said, I am among you as the one who serves. So this this, uh, owner uh, does not represent God in action or in attitude, but it's something to teach us about how to think of ourselves and our works. So I said I have two points. The first one is this. Our labor for Christ is to be continuous. Our labor for Christ is to be continuous. And then secondly, my point, my second point will be our labor for Christ is not meritorious. Not meritorious. And that will directly connect with question 63 uh, of Lord's Day 24. All right, first, our labor for Christ is to be continuous. I think that you can see that easily in this story. And I want to point out that the reasons for that are at least twofold. One is that we are owned by God. He made us. He made us from nothing. Without his will, we would never have existed. Not just did God make the world in general, but he made each of us individually and specifically. Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He made us. And providentially, he takes care of us. He upholds the universe by the word of his power, and he upholds you and me. I had an elder tell me in my first pastorate a hundred years ago, he said to me, you know, if, if God removed his sustaining power, a tree just wouldn't wilt and die. It would just cease to exist. Poof, it's gone. I said, well, I've never thought of it that way, but I think that's a good way to think about it. God made us. He providentially takes care of us by upholding us, sustaining us, and he's bought us by the blood of his only son. He's redeemed us. He's released us by the payment of a price, the dear price of the blood of his dear son. And therefore, we are owned by him both by creation and by redemption. Now, let me do a little bit of an aside, because if you're really thinking tonight, you may have this question. And if you're not, I want you to have this question so I can help you with it. It's one that I think we're perplexed by. Here's the question. I'm saying that there are many ways to think about who we are as God's people, the chosen, the elect, the the sheep, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the... Christ followers, there's all different ways you can refer to God's people, and you can think of us as sons of God, and you can think of us as servants. So here's the question. When should I think of myself as a servant, and when should I think of myself as a son? Or when should I think of myself as a sheep? Or when should I think of myself as one of the elect? And I can't hold all those things in my mind at the same time. And so 
I think it's a pressing question because the Bible describes the people of God in these various ways. And here's the answer. When wisdom directs you to do so. What do I mean by that? When you need the warmth and the love of sonship, you need to think of yourself as a son of God and God as your father. And when you need the control and restraint of servanthood, you need to think of God as your owner and your master. And then if you're really thinking tonight, you're going to ask this question. Well, well, pastor, I'm pretty good at deceiving myself. How can I know when I'm supposed to think of myself one way and when I'm supposed to think of myself the other way or the other way or the other way? How can I keep from deceiving myself? And the answer to that is this. Live in accountable, corrective, and directive fellowship. You've got to have a friend or friends that you can go to and say, am I right in this? Is this the way I need to be thinking of myself and thinking of my Lord? We need to be living in accountable, corrective, and directive fellowship. We can't live the Christian life alone. And, and, And sad to say... So many of us in the Reformed tradition try to do so. That's a dangerous thing because we all tend to deceive ourselves. Okay, our labor for Christ is to be continuous. Why? Because we're owned by him. And secondly, because he's the Lord of all of life. At all times, in all places, and in all activities... Whenever, wherever, and whatever we're doing, Jesus is Lord of that. He doesn't give up his lordship on Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or any other day of the week. He doesn't give up his lordship when you're on vacation or when you retire or when you're a child and too young to have a job yet. There's no time and no place and no activity of which Jesus is not the Lord. So our labor for Christ is to be continuous because he's the Lord of all times and places and events and because he owns us by virtue of creation and redemption. Now look at the story. I'm going to apply this in the story. The slave worked all day and then at night he continued to work as he should. Why? Why? The slave is owned by the man. Listen carefully. He is not contracted to the man. He is not contracted to the man. Contracts lead to calculations on how much I will give and how much I will get. And calculation leads to reservation when I have given what I'm supposed to give. But it's not a contract. We're not contracted to God. We're owned by God. I'm supposed to serve God unreservedly. A pastor I know was talking to a lady after a worship service one day, and the lady was showing some nervousness about some of the things he'd said in his sermon because in his sermon he had taught that salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. 
that we contribute nothing to our salvation, a very orthodox uh, teaching in the Presbyterian Reformed tradition. And you might say, well, why was the woman so nervous? Because she was saying this, look, if it's all of grace, then there's nothing that God could not ask me to do. Exactly. (laughs) That's the deal. If it's all of grace, if it's all of grace, if everything is of grace, if I contribute nothing to my salvation, is there anything he could not rightly ask of me? No, there's really not. There's God's grace to us in our creation and God's grace to us in our redemption. So let me ask you, is there any overtime in Christian service? Do you get time and a half when you're tired? I think you get the answer pretty quickly in the way I'm talking about this, aren't you? There's no overtime in serving God. Are there holidays in Christian service? Are there days off from serving God? Well, what about vacation, you say? Well, you can go on vacation, but he's still the Lord of your life while you're on vacation. What about retirement, you say? Well, you can retire, but he's still the Lord of your life in your retirement. You don't, you're not off duty in any of those times, right? God has an absolute retirement, I mean, right to all of our time and to all of our energy because it's all of grace. What do you have, wrote Paul to the Corinthians, that you did not receive? And, of course, the answer is nothing. Our past service does not absolve us from future obligation. Even when we're tired, it is our duty to press on. The slave was certainly tired after a long day in the field, maybe with obstinate sheep. and We get tired too, but we can never say, I've earned the right to be left alone by God. You can say, I've earned the right to take a little break for a while and refresh and renew. But even in your refreshing and renewal, God is the Lord of your life. Because you're owned by God and you're his servant. He always has a claim on us. We never merit withdrawal from the field of labor in his service. We can never rightly say, I've served as this or that or the other thing long enough. Let somebody else do it. Why? Because our service for God is not to be measured by the standard of what others do and don't do. Even when it's inconvenient. We must respond to his call for service. So our labor for Christ is to be continuous. I think the story of this slave and being in the field and coming in shows that clearly. And then secondly, our labor for Christ is not meritorious. Why not? Because we cannot exceed our duty. Either in quantity of works we do or quality of works that we do, no matter how many things we do, no matter how well we do them. Look at verse 10. Look at verse 10. When we, when, so you, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We've only done what was our duty. We didn't exceed our duty. We didn't go past our duty. Let me ask you, when you paid off your car loan, did you get a note from the uh, company that was holding the the, the, the note on your car, did you get a note that said, oh, you're great, you paid off, paid off your note. That was wonderful. No, you didn't. It was, you just did what was required, right? It was just your duty and you did it and that's the way things are done. 
What is our duty to God? Continuous obedience to all of his revealed will. So our labor for Christ is not meritorious because we cannot exceed our duty. And secondly, it's not meritorious because all of our good works are the result of his grace in us. By his grace, we die to self. By his grace, we get ideas for how to labor for him. By his grace, we make plans to labor for him. By his grace, we have energy to labor for him. By his grace, we have success in our labor for him. It's all of grace. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Writing to the Philippians, he said, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now... Not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you. The reason we work is because God works in us, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. I'm trying to make the point that our labor for Christ is not meritorious because we cannot exceed our duty, because all our good works are the result of his grace. Thirdly, because even our best works are imperfect. Our best works are imperfect. We are unworthy servants. We deserve no special thanks. Our acts themselves are far from perfect. The motives behind our actions are far from perfect. So how, how can we apply this uh, first? Our labor for Christ is to be continuous. But now this second, our labor for Christ is not meritorious. Now, um, you can tell Pastor Joling when he comes back that I read from the Catechism of the Catholic Church and just look at the expression on his face, okay, before uh, you tell him the truth. Uh, this is a foil. Some of you uh, may have Roman Catholic backgrounds. By the way, I'm not anti-Catholic. I'm anti-Catholicism. I think as a system of doctrine, it is, it is bad and not salvific. Um, I think uh, if you follow Roman Catholic doctrine to the T, you'll be in deep theological weeds. And what they teach about works is works, what, what we call, what they call works of super irrigation. Some of you maybe have heard the word super irrigation, a super work, a work, an erg. You remember from physics, a, a unit of, of work is an erg, and a super work of super irrigation is a work that goes beyond what's required. And the Roman Catholic teaching about super irrigation is based on things like this. This is the 1994 Catechism of the Catholic Church. Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others the graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. In other words, the Catechism of the Catholic Church is teaching that we can do more than we need to do for ourselves. And the way this works out is the, the, the saints in the Roman Catholic sense, like uh, uh, St. Teresa or some of the others, they do more than is required, and the extra they do is kind of a, 
a, a bankroll of merit that the church can dole out to others that fall short in the works they've done and need the merits that the others have earned. How can our good works, this is question 63 in the Heidelberg Catechism, how can our good works be said to merit nothing when God promises to reward them in this life and the next? The reward is not merited. It's a gift of grace. And, and the other questions as well. It seems to me, if anything, this, this story um, in, in, uh, about this, uh, this servant uh, and, and uh, his, his owner, his master, tells us we, we never do more than our duty. We never do works of super irrigation. We never, we don't even do what we should do, much less go beyond it and have some stored up that I can give to others. What is Jesus trying to teach his disciples here? There's no room for pride in Christian service. What we do never exceeds what is required. God never owes us because he owns us. He never owes us because he owns us. We never have a claim on God. He's never our debtor, no matter how much we do or don't do. Well, I came to church. God will bless me. God ought to bless me now. I gave some money. God ought to bless me. I taught the kids in Sunday school. God ought to bless me. Neither our giving or our going nor our doing earnest merit before God. It's not a good sign when people are satisfied with their level of service to God. Maybe we don't know what we owe to God. Maybe we don't know how we got to where we are. We're blind, perhaps, to our imperfections or to God's standards. So our works for God are to be continuous. Our work for God is never meritorious. So how do we come to God in worship? We come to God, you know the words of the old hymn, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. We come to worship with nothing in our hands. We don't buy God off. We don't buy his favor. We've not done extra than was required. No matter what, at best, we've only done our duty. And we come to worship with Jesus on our lips and in our hearts. His works are the works that make us right with God. His works are the works that have pleased the Father because they are perfect and they are complete. He kept the law perfectly for his people, and then he died the death that his people deserved. He, his sacrifice is the sacrifice that is accepted by the Father. Not my sacrifice, not your sacrifice. We think sometimes we sacrifice for God, and therefore he ought to bless us and reward us, and he owes us. But it's not my sacrifice and not my works, it's his, because his sacrifice was total. He gave himself up to death. His sacrifice was substitutionary. He took the wrath that my sins deserved. And therefore, my service can never exceed my duty. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Think about it. Let's pray. Lord, you demand 
our soul, our life, our all, because it's all of grace. Because we're your servants, because we're your slaves, because you own us by creation and you own us by redemption, and it's all of grace. And forgive us the ways that we feel like you owe us. Forgive us that we think we can earn merit that you must repay. Forgive us and make us zealous servants for the joy that's set before us and the joy we feel when we serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.